Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Okay, hello. I will be reading 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered by his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know we have passed out death into life because we love brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our other brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how, God's love, how does God lo- God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in the word or talk, but in deed and in truth. All right. He was climbing the soccer post, went to grab the top, and it was wet. And he fell. That's how he broke his arm. Just so everybody knows. All right, uh, real quick, just to give a quick preview, um, as Garth said, next week is share service where, uh, where we get together, and there's always something that happens every, week, every year during share service where uh, we are encouraged as the body of Christ to know that God is still at work, um, and we hear a lot from the kids, they're often the first one up, but I'm going to encourage you this week not only to practice gratitude, it's a good week for that, last holiday that Hallmark has not corrupted, uh, and... Um, uh, it's just we sit at a table and we feast together and we, and we are thankful. Like it's hard, hard to corrupt that. Um, and uh, anyway, but I, my hope and prayer is that this week you uh, would spend time cultivating gratitude and then come ready to share that next Sunday. And then we are going to go into our season of Advent. Uh, we're going to take a break from First John through the end of the year and go through uh, the season of Advent together. So we will start that. Actually starts next Sunday, but then, uh, but then it'll carry on. Uh, we, we, yeah, we'll enter the series here uh, after that, where we actually are, we've been spending this week, in, this year in First John. I'm going to dismiss kids in just a second, so hang tight. We've been in First John, and, and kind of a, an underlying theme has kind of been building our testimony. And so as we enter into Advent, we're going to look at uh, how we actually tell a better story. Uh, as the people of God. What is this testimony? How, do we, how does the, the gospel of Jesus actually tell a better story than the world could ever tell? So with that, kiddos, uh, elevate first and second grade. I got the ages right. Uh, we do have EGC this morning, third, fourth, and fifth grade, going to learn the New City Catechism with Mr. Steve. And then, uh, all right, the mass exodus is done. And uh, the rest of you get to uh, hang out and hear with me. Um, do you remember the phrase, or have you, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, you are what you eat? Remember that? Um, 
this phrase, I, so I started thinking about that. There's actually a history to this phrase, if you didn't know this. 1826, a French lawyer uh, wrote the phrase, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you what you are. And then decades later, uh, by a famous German philosopher, very, in, a, in a very anti-religious piece, Ludwig Feuerbach wrote, Der Mensch ist, was der ist. A man is what he eats. Now, it'd be a little bit before that caught on in American circles. Uh, in the 1920s, uh, the uh, nutritionist Victor Lindlar made the statement in an advertisement, actually, 90% of the diseases known to man are caused by cheap foodstuffs. Um, and then he said, you are what you eat. And he used this during a radio show for quite a while, and then after he passed away, it kind of went underground again. And then the hippie movement of the, of the 60s actually brought this back up with the uh, macrobiotic whole food movement as a slogan related to how healthy eating affected everything. It affected your physical, your emotional, your mental health, your awareness, all of that stuff. And one of the leading advocates, Adele Davis, uh, would often say, you are what you eat. Uh, and in the 1960s, uh, when she got cancer that would eventually take her life, she would attribute that to the junk food she ate in college. Now, I'm not here to talk about our diets uh, at all. And where I do believe what we do eat is important, uh, you, will not, you, you will find me lacking in practicing said belief uh, often. Um, and now, I do think we are foolish to ignore our diets completely, so I will call myself foolish on that uh, front. Um, but I also think probably several of us could name exceptions to the rule, right, in, in this area. People that take care of their bodies and eat healthy and then something happens or they're very unhealthy in, in other areas. Uh, or, or inevitably, the 110-year-old that they interview on TV, what's your secret to life? And they're always like bacon every morning and three shots of whiskey in the afternoon. <laughs> and you're like, I've been doing this wrong. Um, but there is a rule here that I think is very important, uh, and this is something that I do want to examine this morning as we get into 1 John, and that's this. What we abide in, we become. We will resemble what we worship. We will become, as, as uh, Jamie Smith, the, the Canadian uh, scholar and theologian, what he would say is, we are what you are what you love, which is a great book. Talks a lot about malls in there, but still a great book. Um, now, here's what's interesting. Some people have attributed that phrase, you are what you eat. They've, they've said it goes far, actually shows up far before the 1800s. Anybody, anybody want to take a, a wager at the... Uh, a guess, not a wager. Probably shouldn't do that. Um, a guess at where, that, where they think that phrase might have originated? Yeah, Josh. Biblical times? So you're on the right track. Communion. Now, 
There's little documentation for that, but certainly uh, that's an interesting thought, is it not? We become what we partake. I'm not going to get into all the con and transubstantiation and all that kind of stuff, but um, this passage <clears throat> that Knox read uh, is, on one hand, is pretty straightforward, and on another hand, it seems to be incredibly misunderstood, neglected, misapplied, qualified, on and on and on and on and on. Um, I finished last week with this thought. It's tough, it's tough to think about measuring growth in the Christian life without the legalists winning every time. Right? Um, what, is, what is growth? How do we grow in the Christian life? Do we have more doctrine? Do we have more disciplines, more church attendance, more solid habits? All of those things. And listen, those are all good. They're all good. But if we, are, if we measure our growth in the Christian life by that, there are people, there, legalists can do that and still be far from the kingdom of God. They can have impeccable habits and see no change or transformation and actually not know Jesus. Um, uh, but if we measure growth in the Christian life by love, are you actually loving more? When Jesus was asked to summarize all of the law and the prophets, he said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The one is uh, straight out of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. The other is out of Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you what, class? Exactly. <laughs> love one another. So this commandment to love one another is mentioned at least, and I say at least because I think this is qualified, but at least 13 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. And John reminds us here in this passage, this is not, this is, you've heard this command from the beginning. Jesus issues this command. You've heard this from the beginning. This is not new. Now, the reason he does that is because false teachers have come in and said there is a secret. There's a, a deeper secret that if you really want to, uh, if you really want to grow in the spiritual life, you've got to have these deeper insights and these secret insights. And what John says uh, is this is not new. There's not a code to unlock uh, to, to fight the true enemy. If you want to know the secret code to the Christian life, here it is. Love one another. That's it. Now, this also says that the world is going to hate us when we love, and that doesn't seem to make sense at all. Why would the world hate, why, why would the world reject us because of our love? Especially in our day when love seems to be such a popular theme. Well, I think it's this. The world, and let me tell you what I mean when I say world. I mean anything that is not, when we, anything that is not follower of Jesus. So that can be an irreligious part of culture, or it can be a religious part of culture. And I think what the world wants is, wants us to love who the world loves and how the world loves. Love is great when we love the people that, that we're told to love, when we love the right side. But that's not necessarily how biblical love works. When we love the way that God loves, it's going to look different. It's going to look different from a secular progressive definition of love, and it's going to look different from a religious conservative def definition of love. And when you love in the type of way 
that God loves, eventually it will be infuriating. And I don't want to spend too much time unpacking this, but it will be infuriating to people who have to compare themselves to you. All right? Cain. Cain offered a sacrifice to God in Genesis chapter 4. God did not say, get out of here, I never want to see you again. God's response to Cain, Cain could have said, you're right, I held back. I repent. Here is my first fruits. But he didn't. Cain became enraged with envy and jealousy and killed Abel. Abel did nothing wrong. Cain was exposed, and rather than being humbled and repenting and bringing the full offering, he took vengeance into his own hands. If and when, when we can find our identity with the great love with which the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, when we get that, there is no cause for us to compare ourselves to other people for our value and worth. If we are without that, then we must compare ourselves to other people for our value and worth. Does that make sense? At least a little bit? Cain was driven by envy and jealousy and rage. And when we love purely because we have been loved, that can eventually drive people mad. Others. All right. So what does it mean to love somebody? Uh, I've been listening to uh, a lot of this guy. I talked about him last week, John Mark Comer. He's got a book, um, uh, Live No Lies, and uh, pastor in Portland. Uh, and, and he's just brilliant on the way he looks at culture. And so when he defined love, um, in defining love, I'm going to riff on some of the stuff that he said. I'm not going to quote it exactly, but just so you know, uh, I'm, I'm not the smart guy here. Um, some of the things that he portrays, it was just, it was really helpful. We don't have multiple words for the word love right? We have love, and that's, and that's about it. And so, um, th- this is all one word. I love you. I love bacon cheeseburgers. Uh, I love Jesus. I love the Cardinals. I love the Rocky Mountains. I love Lamp. I couldn't not do that. Um, And we have the same word. And do we mean the same thing when we say that? Do we mean the same thing in all these? If we're going to have a definition where we say love is the place of measurement of our growth in the Christian life, uh, then, then we should have a, a good working definition of what love is and what love isn't. Uh, and so what John Mark says about our cultural definition of love what, he, what, what we mean when we say love, we, when we say, I love bacon cheeseburgers, A, we're going against we are what we eat. Well, maybe we're not. We are what we eat, all right? Um, but when we say, I love bacon cheeseburgers, what we mean by that is, I, I like them, they are pleasing to me, I desire them, and I want to consume them for my pleasure. I desire them, and I want to consume them for my pleasure. And if I, th- I think if we're honest, we would be able to see that we don't just talk about 
cheeseburgers or food items that way. This, this, I think this is our cultural definition of love. To coin Dolly Parton and Whitney Houston, I will always love you, right? Unless or until I stop receiving pleasure from you. And then I hold the right to leave, to go and find pleasure elsewhere. Um, and that goes across the board, whether that's romantic love, whether it's friendship, whether it's church membership. The kids, uh, kids in our neighborhood, when our, when our kids were younger, they would always do this, right? I don't, uh, they would always threaten friendship. Did you ever have that? If you don't give this to me, if you don't let me have one, if you don't do whatever, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. And our kids got lectures after that. Because I would tell them all the time, do not ever threaten friendship. That is not what friendship is for. It is not a weapon. Uh, Michael Stipe, lead singer of R.E.M., one of his most popular songs ever, uh, he revealed was actually the way that he saw how he viewed relationships. And he confessed that long ago, and now he's like, I really don't want to talk about it. But when he was young, one of his most popular songs ever he confessed that he looked at himself and said, this is what I do in relationships. This one goes out to the one I love. This one goes out to the one I've left behind. Remember, anybody remember the next lyric? A simple prop to occupy my time. This one goes out to the one I love. Where he had the self-realization that he looked at relationships for what he was going to get out of them. And he saw that he was simply using people. Now, as always, Christians, followers of Jesus, we need this warning over and over and over and over again. Please do not think about who else needs to hear this. Don't give a little elbow or think, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. You need to hear this. I need to hear this. This is not for somebody else. Okay? This is for you. Let this hit you before it hits somebody else. Biblical love is not about self-consumption for our pleasure. Biblical love is not based on, really, our economy of capitalistic consumerism where we want the best religious goods and services for the lowest costs. Biblical love for the follower of Jesus, uh, in order to define love, we're told to look to the very definition of love. How do we know what love is? That he laid down his life for us. It's Jesus. How do we know what love look like, looks like? It looks like Jesus. In fact, John's Gospel in chapter 15, we read a passage of it earlier, but this is what he says about this new commandment. My command is this. Uh, this is in John 15, 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I have called you friends. 
For everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, I chose you, I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this is my command, love each other. This is given as a general command for the church, a general command for followers of Jesus. But you know what this also is? This is friendship. This is friendship with Jesus, which seems weird. And it's friendship with one another. The gift of love, this, this is the love that Jesus has given to the entire bride. Um, and quite honestly, as a confession, and probably repentance, we don't talk about this type of love as much as we should. We talk specifically about marital love and we talk about romantic love and how to love in marriage, um, which is restricted to marriage. But this is a gift given to all members of the church, all parts of the body of Christ. And you know what? When you take a vow of marriage, you commit to love each other until when? Until death do, do us part. Marital love does not last into eternity. Granted, that is not a biblical text. It's a marriage vow. Marital love does not last into eternity, but you know what does? Friendship. The love of friendship, to be a friend of Jesus, this is the love given to all of us that lasts into eternity. Um... The New Testament authors give us a pretty good framework and some really good practices for how we are to love one another. As a few years ago, I did a study on the one another's uh, and throughout, uh, that are all throughout the New Testament. Um, and whereas the goal of cultural love is self-pleasure, you fulfill me, <laughs> uh, and just so you know, there is no other person that will ever fulfill you because they are not the Savior. Um, Biblical love is sacrificial. It is given. It is giving of ourselves for the sake of the other. So in love for each other and in biblical friendship, uh, the question is not what is in you that I can consume and gain pleasure from. The question is what do I, uh, what can I give? What is in me to give to you? And a few years ago, we went to this, uh, this pastor's cohort, which I'll talk about in just a second. We went to this, like, pastor whisperer guy. His name is Jack Nicholson. It's not the Jack Nicholson, but he's definitely a Jack Nicholson. And uh, one of the things he said is we always talk about selfless. We were to be selfless in our love. And he said, no, 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 no. Jesus did not love out of a selfless love. Jesus loved out of a whole self. Isn't that beautiful? We do not give out of selflessness. We give out of the abundance of what we receive from Jesus himself. His love overflows. So it's not about how much can I neglect myself to serve others. It is about abiding in Jesus and that overflowing to others. The friendship that we have received from Jesus himself. The New Testament contains over a hundred instances of this phrase, one another, and almost 60 of them are in reference to commands of how we are to treat and relate with each other, fellow followers of Jesus. And so at Refuge, we call this one anothering one another. 
Um, the command to love one another, again, is used at least 13 times. And so under that command to love one another, there's basically six general themes amongst all of the rest of these uh, that we're going to kind of parse out. And, and very, we're, at this point, we're just going to get very pragmatic. How, what does the New Testament tell us for the followers of Jesus? What does it look like to love one another? So we're just going to walk through that um, together. The first one is, and these are in no particular order, the first one is greet one another. Mentioned several times. Romans 5, Paul tells Roman believers and Gentile believers in all of their differences that they should welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Paul tells followers of Jesus to greet one another with a holy kiss. They're Eastern, we're Western. Get it? We don't do that as much. But it was still a sign of welcoming. Our cultural greetings are terrible. They are terrible. Hey, what's up? In which you hope that they don't answer, right? Well, you know, actually, I was, oh, I'm sorry. I meant what's up, and you're supposed to reply with what's up. Or not much. Or fine. Right? You don't even have to answer the question. Just say fine. Um, our cultural greetings are terrible. Do you, do you know how good it feels to feel welcomed? Um, my wife told me not to chase rabbits this morning. I'm going to chase one real quick. Um, Brene Brown talks about the deepest need of every man. This is sociology, which I think bears biblical, like, pour, pours out the gospel beautifully. And she says the the deepest need of every human is to feel connected. Through her research, she found the deepest need of every human is not science, uh, it's not uh, diet, um, it's, not, it's to feel connected. Do you know why? Because we were designed to be connected. That's why. So she said if the deepest need, if you get to the deepest part of the human heart and the deepest need for every human is to feel connected, what's the deepest fear of every human? to be rejected. Do you know how good it feels to feel welcomed? Do you know how good it feels to somebody come up to you and say, hey, I'm really glad that you're here. I was looking forward to seeing you. Uh, a few days ago, a couple weeks ago, I had my, my pastor's cohort. Um, it's been two years since we've been able to get together. Uh, and so we, we got together in Florida. I, I drove my parents down to Florida a few weeks ago, and we got together uh, down in the Keys. And so I picked one guy up from the airport, and then the other three guys were going to meet us. And we were going to this restaurant uh, that was a big deck overlooking the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, the sun was kind of on its way down. And me and the guy that I picked up at the airport, we got around the corner. And this is a chill uh, Florida Keys restaurant. Everybody's cool as day with, like, dark tans and all that kind of stuff. And we just walk in and we jumped up like little kids and shouted and interrupted the guy playing Jimmy Buffett or Bob Marley or whatever he was playing and, and like just embraced and hugged and the kind of hugs where you like lift the other person off their feet. Sorry, the other hugs where guys lift me off of my feet. Um, and, uh, and I mean, we just, it was like little kids 
And, and when I feel welcomed like that, I'm insecure and self-protected. When I feel welcomed like that, here's the thing, fear and shame, like I want to bring everything when I feel welcomed like that. I don't feel the need to hide stuff. I don't feel the need to perform. I don't feel the need to just give the, the highlights. I'm like, here's my junk, and I am so glad to be here. There's a command to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So some of us might need to rethink how we think Christ welcomes us with open arms and a giant hug. How are we as the body of Christ? How do we welcome and greet one another? The next one is encourage one another. Just quick show of hands. Uh, how many of you have plenty of encouragement, you don't need any more, and you're good? Okay, cool. Uh, that's what I thought. Uh, I don't know that uh, anybody has, gets enough encouragement. Uh, I will say for me, I've learned sarcasm. Uh, it is a deep method of self-protection for me. And unfortunately, it gets in the way often of me being more encouraging. Um, and I've been fighting against that, and I'm trying to undo that. And I want to be a better encourager. Uh, and that's my confession. It's easier for me to make a joke uh, than it is to, to actually dole out good encouragement. And I think the Bible spells out two types of encouragement. There's one that is building each other up, build one another up. And there's another one that is providing hope in the midst of suffering. And Paul uses the resurrection for that. One day this will be undone. Paul doesn't say, uh, tomorrow, I'm sure tomorrow will be better. Uh, Paul doesn't say, just keep, you know, keep your chin up and have a positive attitude. That we are in to encourage one another in, in, in dark times with uh, the fact that this is, not, this is not it. And I'm not going anywhere. We'll get to that one. That's bear with one another. But the other one is to build one another up. Building each other up. This is not just a pep talk. I think this is seeing something in someone that God designed that might go unnoticed that you bring out. That you actually take time to see. Uh, I had a friend of mine who, uh, he was a little older. He had a bit of a cantankerous relationship with his children. And when his daughter, his college age daughter, gave him a book about Jesus. And uh, this, my friend hated reading. Hated reading. And so when he received this book, I think it was a Christmas gift. When he received this book from his daughter, his response was, I'm probably not going to read this. A few years later, several years later, he became a Christian. And he was talking to me about, he was recalling that story, and he knew how much that hurt his daughter and how painful it was for him, for her. And so here, whatever, 10, 15 years later, he went back and found the book and said, so I pulled that book out and, and I read it. And I was like, whoa. Have you told your daughter that? That's a big deal, right? That's, that's the Jack Nicholson, right? And as good as it gets, taking pills for Helen Hunt because you make me want to be a better man. Like that is just, that's a profound sense of encouragement. I wounded you and I want to undo that. Genuine encouragement is when we see someone and remind them that they are an image bearer of God and that has impacted you, that you appreciate in that image-bearingness in some form or fashion. 
To do this takes presence. It takes that we see and pay attention, that we're here together, that we pay attention to people. Uh, It takes practice. It takes knowing things that we would presume or maybe not see very often. It takes boldness and glory be refuge. It takes awkwardness, which we do well. It means hemming and hawing around things that we're not, we may not get right, but it takes a measure of boldness um, and awkwardness. Um, and, uh, and it just takes in the midst of our own things to give out encouragement generously. It takes a soft heart. I don't know about you, but for me, it's easy to see things that I don't like. I've, I've told my wife a hundred times that uh, I don't like surveys because you have an event, everybody loves it, and then you ask what, what you didn't like. And then everybody's like, oh, you know what? Come to think of it. We need to give out encouragement generously. Next one, live in harmony with one another. All right, this one's being tested. It's just being tested. It's been tested throughout history. Nobody's got it right. That's why we had to write this command 13 times in the, in the scripture. Uh, I do believe this is something we have to fight hard for. I don't believe live in harmony goes, you know what, we just need to get along. There's none of that hint in scripture. It is a battle to live in harmony with one another. Um, it requires hard conversations that are not, this is what, gets me, that are not like mic drop conversations where we ask a question that we really don't want to be answered. Um, And uh, it takes conversations where we're not simply out to win, where we consider someone else's best argument and not just low-hanging fruit. Um, And it means when necessary that we address issues of faith that are more than just differences, that are more than just different interpretations, some that are actually detrimental to the faith or or define or describe something other than who Jesus is called to be, but that we do that with humility, that we listen, that we don't presume, and we ask good questions, that we become more curious curious and less judgmental, right? To To quote the great... Uh, Ted Lasso quoting the great Walt Whitman. Um, Romans 12 gives us the best warning on this one. Live it in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty and don't be wise in your own eyes. That's a hard check for me. I am slightly opinionated and I respect my opinion. And uh, there are things that I just don't get. There's things that I just cannot understand how to be a follower of Jesus and hold certain positions. And I have to check myself in my haughtiness. And it has not been pretty. Um, And then along with that, we cannot control the way other people respond and react to that, but we can control our own response, especially when we're talking about brothers and sisters in the faith. But as far as it has to do with us, that we would fight for harmony. And for those who are musically inclined, you will be glad to know harmony is not simply unison. Harmony is not simply one note. Harmony can be several different notes that work together for the beauty of sound. So this is not uniformity. So when we get down to point 
H <laughs> on the secondary scales, we may be able to go, okay, it's all right if we differ on this one. Bear with one another. I feel like that one defines itself, but with all humility and gentleness and patience, bear with one another in love. We don't fix each other. We bear with one another. The Holy Spirit does the work in us. Um, and uh, I don't know how many of you follow various theological musings on the Internet and different debates that are going on, but there's a debate that's been happening recently about empathy and the idea that empathy is a sin. And let me just encourage you, it's not. It's right here. Bear with one another. That's empathy. Take on each other's wounds. Enter into each other's stories. When someone reveals their wound or their shame, the first action is not to correct. It's not to gasp. It's not to go, I would never. It's not to get angry. It's to love and resolve to be present in this with you. I want for your good. This doesn't mean we don't ever, we don't, that we never say anything corrective, uh, but it means that we, like Jesus, can be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Um, I, I thought I have not shared this illustration in a while. Um, again, some differences, but the old Leo DiCaprio movie, The Beach. Okay, good. Nobody's rolling their eyes. I looked quickly. Uh, old Leo DiCaprio movie, The Beach, where the, the, the beautiful people find this secluded beach on an island, and on one side it's surrounded by a uh, it's surrounded by a reef so that nobody from the outside can get in, and on the other side it's uh, pot farmers, and so the officials kind of stay away from there. It's off the coast of Thailand, and it's this perfect utopia that not very many people know about, and it's all these beautiful teenagers, well, maybe 20s, 20-year-old, all these beautiful millennials that are hanging out uh, on this beach and they have all the food and water and pot and whatever and volleyball, beach volleyball, and it's like this utopian perfect thing. I'm not advocating for pot. Um, uh, but it's this utopian world. And then one day a guy's out swimming and gets, he gets bit by a shark. And he stays on the beach and, he, and he, he's not getting better and they can't, they don't want to give up their secret world that they'd have to call somebody in and they don't think he would make it if they took him on a raft and so he's kind of killing the vibe as days turn into weeks and he's not getting better and he's moaning and groaning and they can't have their utopia when there's pain involved and so the group decides to take him just outside the border where they can hear him into the jungle and they set him down and they leave him there to die and on their way back to the beach uh, Leo the narrator shares this insight. He said, in a shark attack or any other major tragedy, I guess the important thing is to get eaten and die, in which case there's a funeral and somebody makes a speech and everybody says, what a good person you were. Or get better, in which case we can forget about it. Get better or die. It's the hanging around in between that really, that really ticks people off. We have a whole lot of life in between. followers of Jesus, we are called, just as God has been patient with us and with his people, we are called to bear with one another. Last two, we'll go quick. Serve one another. 1 Peter 4.10, each one has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The gifts that we have are not to be stewarded for ourselves, but for each other. Um, here, John gives a good example of that, right? If you have the world's needs and see somebody in need, if you have the world's possessions, you see somebody in need, 
give, help. Whatever gift you have to give generously. Garth mentioned earlier, there's an easy way to serve here, uh, to, to serve with kids, uh, not just filling in spots uh, on, a, on a calendar, but to actually serve. Um, to do that more specifically in a general relationship, uh, in our house, my wife and I both hate, hate, hate folding laundry. Um, and up until March 2020, I would use Thursday mornings and I would blare the radio and I would fold the laundry. Um, Allison said if I was going to share that illustration this morning that I had to promise to get back onto that duty. Um, so, I hate folding laundry, but I love my wife. So I fold laundry. I folded laundry and I'm resolved to do it again. To serve one another is to take in the gifts that God has given us, stewarding it for the good of others. That your giftedness is not just for you, but it is for the whole. And then finally, teach and admonish one another. Sometimes this is done in a formal setting like this one. Sometimes it's done in a Bible study or small group. Um, but that's not at all it means, what it means to teach and admonish. To teach is to share wisdom, but to admonish, there's two different. There's warning, but there's also urging. And so admonish is not always just getting mad at somebody or confronting them when they've done something wrong. It's also an urging towards something good. To love somebody as a follower of Jesus is, is my love for them helping them become more like Jesus. Um, and again, as we, as we walk along the road is when we are to teach and admonish. Every day, sharing insights that God has given us. Uh, when we hear the word discipline, most of the time we think negatively that I'm in trouble. But what's being talked about here and throughout the New Testament is just the daily practice. Living all of this stuff out along, uh, alongside other people. Sharing ins insight and wisdom. And in love, urging and encouraging each other to grow more in faith which is to love God more and to love one another as we're being loved by Jesus. Um, friendship specifically. It's taken me a long time to forge a deep friendship as an adult. Um, there are, I, I have a lot of friends, people that I hang out with, um, but deep and abiding friendships are hard. Adults, anybody... Anybody think that's true? Yeah, deep abiding friendships are hard. And as a pastor, there's even more nuances and all these type of things that, that make it tricky. Um, but I have a, a pastor friend. We will call each other at least three times a week. We share what we're reading. We share what we're learning. We will call and leave extended voicemails about where we're feeling temptation or how our spirits are doing each day if we're encouraged or if we're feeling wiped out. We confess our sins to each other. We receive the reminder that we're not defined by our sin or our shame, but that we are loved by God. When necessary, we push each other, uh, spiritually, not physically. Uh, we try to fight for clarity. We speak up when we see uh, the other doing self-justification or if we detect anger in the other or in ourselves 
We ask for forgiveness and we grant forgiveness. We talk about our other relationships and we welcome insight into our behaviors and the ways we interact in those other relationships if we're in the wrong or not. And yes, of course, we text funny memes and onion articles to each other. Um, culturally, just in general, it is hard to form deep, abiding, vulnerable friendships. We are a wounded lot. We are a defensive bunch. We're a divided bunch. We should both grow in our awareness and sensitivities to each other and each other's needs, and at the same time, we can't go around walking on eggshells and having 10 rules of not talking to how to talk to such and such and so and so. Sometimes the gap there is obvious and sometimes we just make honest mistakes. But we need Christian friendship. I need followers of Jesus who work in different spheres of influence to help me learn and connect in ways that I don't know. I need followers of Jesus that don't love sports and give good biblical insight into my life based on movies about goblins and space people and Jedis and stuff. Um, I need followers of Jesus who are of a different ethnicity to help me see my arrogance, some of my blind spots, some of my offenses, both personal and corporate. The church needs friendships from followers of Jesus in parts of the world where they actually face persecution to help us gain perspective. I need friends that struggle with the same things I do so that I don't feel shame and alone in the struggle and I can share that burden with them. I need to be a friend to others because I need to be reminded often that the world does not revolve around me. I need to get in discussions where I disagree with another follower of Jesus and can still love them even though they're wrong. At least 13 times in the New Testament, followers of Jesus are given the command to love one another, to give ourselves to each other, that we are to fight for it and pursue it, abide in the love of Jesus and give out of that abundance. And in doing this, practicing these things, putting ourselves out there, risking vulnerability, showing up, seeing what uh, this, seeing this church, I don't know if you ever, have you thought about coming to church as a group of friends? And maybe that has to redefine how we define friends. Abiding in Christ and with one another, doing these things, and in doing that, we are becoming what we love. And as far as our testimony goes, we're told the world will know that we are followers of Jesus by our love for one another. So let's pray. Let's take this meal together. Thank you, Jesus, that your, your love is patient and kind and long-suffering, that you have put up with us. Humble our hearts, our postures, our positions, the things we hold more tightly than we should and the things that we don't hold tightly enough. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. And for those that are here this morning that have not experienced your deep and abiding love or maybe are struggling with how that gets tested and proven over and over and over again, um, I pray that you would soften their heart, that you would remind them of your love in the times that they blow it and the times they nail it and that you are actually at work in them. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear how you are at work in us. 
and then spur us on and may we spur each other on out of that abundance toward faith, toward love, toward good works that have been prepared for us to walk in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.